You're listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. This week, we talk with Tamika Isaac-Devine. She became the first African-American female and the youngest person on the Columbia City Council. Welcome, Tamika Isaac-Devine. You were the first African-American female to serve on Columbia's City Council. You were then age 29. Not many women pursue elected positions. What led this to you, and especially at such a young age? Wow. So I did not think I was interested in politics. I'm an attorney by profession, and at the time I was an assistant attorney general for the state attorney general's office prosecuting domestic violence and sexual assault cases throughout the state. So that got me um, interested in, of course, the law and how the law is formed, but not necessarily in politics. And uh, just ironically enough, through my position, I was working with training law enforcement and judges throughout the state, as well as setting up domestic violence courts in the state. And uh, we made a proposal to city council here in Columbia because it's my home. And I felt like as we were setting up domestic violence courts throughout the rest of the state, it'd be uh, good to have one in our capital city. And we made the proposal and it did not get funded through the regular budget process, which enlightened me as to, you know, kind of, it, it really angered me at first because I felt like it's such a huge issue, especially here in South Carolina um, and for the capital city not to want to be a leader and going to domestic violence courts. I was like, well, who is city council? What do they do? And why would they not think this is important? Um, and then I started learning more about city council and the local government. I knew a lot about the state, and I knew a lot on the federal level. I had uh, friends who were in in politics on the state level, but didn't really know a lot about local. And as I started learning more and watching what they were doing, um, it really uh, showed me that local government is where you really impact the lives of people. City council, county council, school boards are really where you make an impact. And um, and then at the time, uh, the youngest person was 50, um, which as I get older to 50, that doesn't seem quite old. <laughs> but back then at 29, I thought that was really old. <laughs> and I thought, you know, wow, no wonder they, uh, they prioritize things differently than I do because they don't have the same uh, perspective that I do. And I felt like the younger perspective was missing on city council. And so I, I chose to run. Um, I actually challenged an incumbent and um, I won uh, my first election by less than 200 votes. Wow. So votes really count. Yeah. So was it very challenging, though, being a woman, being the first African-American woman on the council and the age issue? It, it really was. But it's funny because at that age, I guess, so enthusiastic and um, some people probably would say naive. Um, I don't think I was naive. I just kind of felt like if I run and I don't win, what ha- what's the worst thing that can happen? I meet a lot of great people in my city and I learn more about what's important to my neighbors and friends. And so I went into it not being intimidated by the process, but more being excited by the process. But I, of course, went into it to win. And, um, and so when I was elected, I didn't realize until after I was elected that it was a history-making election. Um, I, I wasn't running to be the first African-American female, the youngest person. I just was running to make a difference in my community. And, um, and so when I got elected, that's when it started 
dawning on me uh, because I was in a room, a lot of times a room, I'd be the only woman in a room or I'd be the youngest person in the room or the only African-American in a room. And that's when it really hit me uh, about that. And so what it did is it just encouraged me more uh, to work really hard and make sure that people never could doubt that I belonged in those rooms. Did you feel in a way you were a role model then for other young women who might aspire to be on a city government council or commission? I didn't realize it at first, um, but ironically enough, so my election was on Tuesday. Two days after my election, the Columbia Housing Authority had their Wall of Fame ceremony, and so I was invited to come as one of the newly elected members, and I was there in the crowd of people, and this woman came up to me with her daughter and said, my daughter would love to take a picture with you. She saw you on the news, and she said, Mommy, I want to be like her. And I was like, oh my gosh, she wants to take a picture with me. <laughs> and, um, and so we did that and she took a picture. And it's interesting because every single year during Black History Month and during Women's History Month, I always get a call from a teacher who says, I have a student who wants to be you in our Black History Month program or in our Women's History Month program. And that reminds me that, you know, I'm working hard every day to, to make a difference. But probably one of the biggest differences I'm making is that I'm inspiring young young women and girls and, and some young men. And what would you tell a young woman or man as far as if they're interested in this career, what should they do? What advice would you have for them? Advice I would have is, first of all, get involved in your community. I mean, the thing about public service is, unfortunately, I've been here long enough to see some really good people who are in it for the right reasons and some really not so good people who are not in it for the right reason, but are in it for the title or some kind of prestige. And so I would say that um, get involved in your community because as you stay involved in the community, not only do you know the needs in the community, but you also are always reminded about why, why it's important to have good people in elected and appointed office. And so if you get involved now, then uh, even once you serve for a while, you, you will never forget why you're there and who you're there to serve. You have championed many causes, but two in particular, development and empowerment of women and youth are areas that you say touch you on a personal level. Why is that? Probably mainly because of number one, women I believe are you know certainly the the backbone of our our society. You know we as women, and I I, I have a lot of admiration for the guys that I serve with, with my husband, with you know a lot of men. But you know certainly you know in specifically in the South, women have not always been in leadership positions, and so um, being able to empower and inspire more women to get involved touches me because I know that that we uh, bring a different perspective to those different dis discussions and those tables, and we need more women with a seat at the table. So that's why that's important. And then for youth, because that's our future. As we get older, you know, our, our community is going to be driven by these young people. And so if we give them the right tools now, um, then they'll be well-armed and well-equipped uh, to take care of us when we get old. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You founded Possibilities Institute. Tell us about this organization and your primary goal. Okay. So the Possibilities Institute was really 
driven out of my desire to do more inspiration for women, particularly in women who are also working moms. I'm a working mom, and you know, I think about as you know, as I grew up, I never really thought that I couldn't have a family and have a career because I saw my mom do it. But as I've been in 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 careers, a lot of places that are primarily dominated by men, you know, and I look at why there are not more women in some of the spaces that I'm in, I realize that there are a lot of women who feel like they can't. And so I've always been asked to come and speak and mentor, but I wanted to figure out how could I do that. But also, quite honestly, as an elected official, you know, most people don't realize us as elected officials, we don't get paid a whole lot. <laughs> and you really don't get paid enough to, to support a family. So you have to have another business. But if you want to serve in the manner that you that makes you effective, it takes you out of your business, the thing that pays your bills a lot because you're in the community. So I had to kind of think of something that I could do as a business, but also help me um, be flexible enough to, to do the service that I want to do. And um, because I was already getting asked to be a mentor and, and to speak on the topic of women in leadership, I wanted to really focus in on primarily working moms and what are the things that keep more women from excelling in leadership or going after the careers that they desire. And what are the things that keep women from excelling? I think part of it is the, the feeling that you have to make that choice, that, you know, people tell us all the time, we have to have work-life balance. Well, you start going into work and you realize there is no such thing as balance. And so sometimes you feel like you're failing because you think that, okay, well, people say I should have work-life balance. If I'm not having it, then I must be a failure. So I'm going to have to give up going after, you know, being president or CEO of this company or starting my own business. Or that I have to give up, you know, the, the dream and desire to be a wife and mom. I know so many women, and it inspires me. You know, I had a child at 44. Um, it inspires me to see all these women at, after 40 realizing I still can, you know, have children. But I know a lot of folks who, like, because they've been in the career so much, they just didn't get married, they didn't have children, and then they feel like, I can't do it now. And I want more women, especially younger women, to realize you don't have to make those choices, those bifurcated choices. You can say, I want to be a great wife and mom. I want to be a great career person or entrepreneur. Let me figure out how do I get it done. Let me go after um, having mentors and sponsors that will help me get those things done. Let me go after um, balancing or, or have integrating, I call it work-life integration, integrating my work responsibilities and my personal responsibilities so that it all complements who I really am. You had a very difficult personal situation and have co-authored a book called Born Into Heaven. Um, you wrote about this difficult time in your life with the death of your unborn child, James Henry. Tell us about that and how the writing of the book helped you through this time. Society tells us once you turn 40, you know, you don't have children. And so um, although I still wanted another child, once I got 40 and realized I wasn't, you know, did, I had my two girls who I love, adore, um, I felt like, okay, that's it. You know, God had a different plan. And my husband and I, when I was 42, discovered I was pregnant. And after the initial shock <laughs> of finding out I was pregnant at 42 and unplanned pregnancy, um, I was really, really excited and welcoming this baby. I was 36 and a half weeks pregnant, went in for a routine ultrasound a couple weeks before my due date and um, was uh, discovered that there was no heartbeat. 
um, had to go in for a C-section and found that um, our baby had a knot in his umbilical cord. Never really had heard that was a thing, that that was even possible, but through the research and through that experience, I realized that actually that is a big reason that um, a lot of stillbirths happen. Uh, and so we say James Henry was born into heaven and that I'm a mommy of an angel. That experience taught me several things. Number one, that's really when I just I founded the Possibilities Institute because it made me realize that um, even to a certain extent, I was so career and, and professional driven and oriented that I wasn't kind of listening to the signs of my body. I wasn't taking care of myself and that I love, love, love being a mom. And I felt like I can be a mom and do all the other things that I'm doing and put those things together so that people see, hey, you can do that. So that that's one of the things. But I think the biggest thing it taught me is that no matter what, um, there are things that happen in our lives. And people always say, you know, something that doesn't break you makes you stronger. And I, I believe that, but I also believe that, you know, there are things that, that happen. And um, there's a saying that says, uh, when things happen, God is gonna do one of two things. Once he takes you to the edge of a cliff, he'll do one of two things. He will teach you how to fly or he'll, you know, lift you up. And so through this, I realized that, you know, through any and every experience, there are things that you learn, there are lessons, but that God is in control of everything and that he will give you the strength and the fortitude to get through whatever comes your way. And now through this book, you're discussing this, you are lifting others up. I hope so. I mean, I, I hope that, you know, again, I didn't realize that uh, stillbirths really were a thing. I think a lot of us, especially women here, you know, once you get through the first three months, you're okay. And I really did not realize that stillbirth was so prevalent. Um, but one in four women in this country um, lose a child through miscarriage or stillbirth. That is a daunting statistic, and I, I'm one in four, and I never really thought about that. But through my loss, and because I went through it in such a public way. I'm a public person. And people saw me at city council one day, huge, pregnant, and me saying, oh, I'm going on maternity leave in next week or in a couple weeks. And then, you know, to learn that I lost a baby, I did it in such a public way. It also, I had so many people reach out to me and say, this happened to me and I, I never spoke about it or I never could. And I felt like people felt like because they might make other people uncomfortable, they didn't talk about their own loss, and so they also didn't deal with their own loss. Writing the book was therapeutic for me, but it also became a way for me to uh, show other people that, I guess I hate to say give them permission, but I think it kinda gave them permission to say that you can talk about it, and that is a way for you to also deal with what you've gone through and work through uh, whatever issues you have about your loss as Part well. Part of the healing. Yeah, definitely. You've written a second book called Think Like a CEO and Act Like a Mom. That's a great combination. <laughs> it sounds like it's something you follow. It is. It's definitely that. So that was that's kind of my signature talk about work-life integration because I feel like, you know, if you think like a CEO, if you think about a CEO, CEO wakes up every day and how do I, you know, move this company forward? How do I, how do I set strategy and, and goals and a vision and a mission for this company? How do I invest in my business to the point where it becomes a return on investment for your shareholders? And so if you think like a CEO, but think about your life in that way, but as I say act like a mom, recognizing that, you know, play dates and chaperoning field trips, 
um, and spending that quality time with your family is very important as well. So how do you take the things that a CEO uses as far as strategy and apply that to your everyday life and your family? And so that's what the, the book is. I share anecdotes about my, my journey, my work life, work life integration journey, you know, taking my, you know, running through a McDonald's uh, drive through and feeding my kids on the way to a meeting and, uh, you know, a mom looking at me, mom shaming like, you're feeding your children McDonald's, you know, I've had, I share that story, but I also share the stories about, you know, how I might work extremely hard over the weekend so that I can, you know, take a couple days off to chaperone field trips. And so it's, it's just my work-life integration story, but also encouragement to other working moms that you can do it. You grew up in this community. Tell us about that. And was there someone in your life, a teacher, who had a major impact? So growing up in Columbia was awesome. My, my dad grew up in Columbia. And so, you know, he he had the history of Columbia. And, and being now a Columbia elected official, it's, it's so interesting because I always grew up learning about, you know, the two historically black high schools, C.A. Johnson and Booker T. Washington, and that rich history. You know, I grew up um, understanding about my father growing up in Waverly and that strong history. Um, and so I was able to know that history in that part of Columbia, but I also grew up in, in Northeast Columbia as that was growing. And so we only had two high schools back then, Spring Valley and Northeast, and I was able to grow up and appreciate Columbia's rich history and understand how it's grown and how it's changed so much. But I'd have to say I went to District 2 schools and probably the teacher that had one of the most uh, profound impacts on me was uh, my science teacher, uh, Clarence Reed. Um, and he actually passed away about two years ago. Um, and I've remained close with his family. Uh, but Mr. Reed was my science teacher. Growing up, I didn't see many black men in the cl classroom. And to see them in, in a father role, but also kind of an encouraging, pushing role. He was a really str strong and staunch. He, he would push you. And it was so funny, because growing up, I always just remember, not only was he, he made me understand that I didn't like science, <laughs> but that it was something I needed to know. So he helped me understand, even if you don't like it, it's a means to an end, you've got to do it. So he gave me an appreciation that I take with me now, is that sometimes you're not going to like things but you got to do them, but it also makes you stronger. It makes you better. And I'm better because I, I did well in science, although I didn't particularly like it. And it taught me that sometimes you're going to have to, you know, put your all into stuff, even if you don't really like it. And it sounds like he served as a role model for you too, that you could visualize someone in that leadership position. Definitely. And someone just compassionate that, you know, did their job, but they did it with a lot of compassion and care. Do you have what you would call an overriding life vision? Wow, yes. Um, my husband would probably say I have several. <laughs> For me, my overriding life vision is to be successful at everything that I set my mind out to do. But success for me isn't just about a title or money or notoriety, but the success is in making a huge difference in the lives of others, even people you might not ever meet or know. Um, and I feel like I've done that um, in my legal practice. I, you know, put my all in. I do a lot with probate court, especially folks who are, are um, adjudicated mentally ill. 
in the city. I, I, I'm a voice for a lot of folks. And as a wife and a mom and as a leader in this community, you know, showing women, I get emails all the time from women saying, I look at you and I'm inspired. I say, if you can do it, I know I can do it as well. And so my vision is to be able to be successful at the things that I set my mind to, recognizing I don't need to be doing everything, but the things that I do, I need to do them well. And what makes you a good leader? Huh. I'd say um, I think what makes me a good leader is my ability to listen and to hear. You know, a lot of times you have leaders who will think think they're listening, but they won't actually hear what people are saying. What I try and strive to do, and I, I think I do pretty well, is listening to people and hear what they're really trying to tell me. And even if it's not my journey or my perception of something, hear what they have to say and figure out how my role can help give a voice to whatever they're trying to tell me. The two qualities we've seen here, your ambition and your compassion, where did that come from? I'd say probably from my family. You know, my parents always instilled in me that you can do anything you set your mind to. And so that I think that's where my ambition and drive comes from because I never really thought that I couldn't do stuff. Because again, I felt like, you know, even if you're not successful at something you go after, at least you learn from the experience. And they always taught that to me. But they always taught me about being compassionate. I mean, from a young age, and I try and do that with my children as well, we've always been volunteering in the community active in community service activities. And so being involved in the community at the level that I've always been, you can't help but be compassionate because you see people that have needs and sometimes don't have a voice and people fighting for those needs. And so that's kind of something that's always been instilled in me. And, and I'm, I thank you for recognizing it because I don't always necessarily intentionally want to portray all those things. Um, but if it comes out, then that means that Obviously, people see that I'm authentic and genuine, and I always try and make sure that I'm authentic to the point where people realize that I am there for the right reasons and trying to fight for people who need a voice. You've talked about Columbia, and you're part of an initiative called Columbia City of Women. What do you hope to achieve with that initiative? I think what I hope to achieve with Columbia City of Women is the opportunity for our young girls and boys to see women in the fabric of our city, in, in the growth of our city. When I was elected, and I guess I still am, I'm the first African-American female on city council. Before I got on council, there were only two other women who had been who had served on city council. We still have women lacking in the traditional leadership roles um, that most boys and girls see. But as you're going through the city of Columbia and, you, and, and you'll see the city of women, you'll see Majeska Simpkins, you see Don Staley, you see um, Jean Toll. Um, so they will grow up knowing that these women impacted the city that they lived in and they understand the role, an important role that women play in building this city. And so I, that's what I hope is that we're inspiring, again, young boys and girls, because uh, until we can see a society that really truly is diverse on all levels, we can't appreciate um, how special that diversity is. So I'm hoping we're, we're instilling that and that we appreciate the role that women play just as well as the role that men have played in building this city. And finally, 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. In your words, why is it important for women to vote? 
voting is just, I always tell people, voting is just the beginning, but it's the, it's the strongest beginning we all have. Voting, voting is your voice, and it's the great equalizer. It is the one thing that no matter you know, who someone else is, what their title is, how much money they have, where they come from, they have one vo vote, and you have but one vote. And those votes make a difference. And if we vote for, if we're educated voters, and we vote for the right people in office, we will help implement the changes that we want to see. But there are people who say, well, my vote isn't going to really count. And there is that apathy. How do you conquer that? I always remind people that my very first election, I won by less than 200 votes. When I ran for office, I went to every single PTO meeting, church, knocked on doors, did any and everything to get my word out. Um, and so if those you know, 200 people had not heard from me, and again, I, I didn't come from a political family, I wasn't well known, I was probably you know, younger than some people's um, children, and so they were like, this little girl, but they, they saw something in me and they came to vote. If those 200 people did not vote, I wouldn't be here today. 18 years later, I'm still here and I'm still making a difference. Um, and I say that I would not be here had those 200 people voted. So I tell people every single vote matters, uh, your voice matters, and you can't let anybody take that from you. Women, we fought for the right to have this right to vote. Um, and, you know, and, and for people to fight for that right and for people to take it for granted, I think it, 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 it's a slap in the face to the women's suffrage movement um, and the civil rights movement. And if we think that it's not going to make a difference, vote. And then after you vote and you still don't feel like you're making a difference, then decide to run for office. <laughs> Thank you. Tamika Isaac Devine. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on KnowItAll and SCETV.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>